Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So this week, I get to preach from the Bible about the Bible. It's kind of cool. I was, uh, <laughs> I did a little Google search this week. It was fascinating. I just Googled quotes about the Bible. You should do it sometime. It's fascinating. Uh, not only just like the, the number of different opinions about the Bible, you have everyone from it's the word of God all the way to it's garbage, you know. Not just the differing opinions that, that I was expecting to see that. But I think the thing that kind of fascinated me the most was um, it seems like everybody who's anybody feels like they need to comment on scripture, comment on the Bible, and have a, a perspective about it. It's like in our culture, it's uh, even though our culture isn't necessarily a, a Christian culture, um, everyone has to interact with this reality of the Bible that's kind of right here in our face. And it's so interesting the, the number of different responses were. I'll, I'll read you a few just for fun. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the American president, said, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. I agree. Um, I don't know if I would just classify it as education, but I would definitely agree with that. Uh, Maya Angelou, the poet and civil rights activist, said, I read the Bible to myself. I'll take any translation, any edition, and read it aloud just to hear the language, hear the rhythm, and remind myself how beautiful English is. Isn't that interesting? Reading the Bible to, to discover the beauty of those words in the English language. That's, I hadn't thought about that before. Uh, another person said this, I like the Bible as a book just like I like Cat in the Hat. That was Marilyn Manson, the musician. <laughs> George Carlin, the comedian, said, I was thinking about, <laughs> I like this one, I was thinking about how people seem to read the Bible a whole lot more as they get older. Then it dawned on me, they're cramming for the final exam. <laughs> George Bernard Shaw, the playwright, said, no man ever believes that the Bible means what it says. He is always convinced that it says what he means. I have that mug on my, actually two or three of them on my desk because I said something about it before and a bunch of you bought me the mug. Uh, it says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> Reminds me of that. Frank Sinatra wants to weigh in on the Bible as well, or did. Uh, he says, alcohol may be man's worst enemy, but the Bible says love your enemy. He did it his way. This gets a little dark. Uh, Amy Waldman, an author and a journalist, says, over the centuries and even today, the Bible and Christian theology have helped justify the Crusades, slavery, violence against gays, and the murder of doctors who perform abortions. The words themselves are latent, inert, harmless, until they aren't. Bless you, that stings. I mean, that, what she just said, that stings. Then on the other side of the spectrum, we have N.T. Wright, who's a biblical scholar, and he says this, the Bible is the book of my life. It's the book I live with, the book I live by, the book I want to die by. What a difference in how people see scripture and, you know, if you think about it, it's very unique and maybe even a little bit odd what we do here every single Sunday and what a lot of Christians do every single day. We open up this ancient book, or actually ancient collection of books. We open this thing up and we go to it, for, written by people on the other side of the world whose culture is very little like ours, ancient, written far away, in a very different time and culture, and we open it and say, I'm looking for truth. I'm looking to lead my life by this book. That's, 
can we just, not, it's not bad, but can we just admit that's a little weird that we do that? What other ancient book do, do people do that with? There are some. In different religions, there's the Quran. Uh, but, you know, the, this is an ancient, ancient compilation of books that we open up and say, I'm gonna live my life here in 2022 by this book. That's an odd thing to do unless that book is more than just any other book more than just like cat in the hat. We're continuing our close and faithful series today. And this week, we're gonna talk about scripture. This week and next, actually, we're talking about scripture. Um, this week, we want to internalize the what and the why. What is scripture? And why in the world would we study and meditate on it? Next week, Kyle's gonna bring us through how to meditate on scripture just the practice of that spiritual discipline. We have instant access to what people think about the Bible all over the place. Again, just, just, just Google that, you know, thoughts on the Bible or quotes on the Bible. You can, you can get information on what thousands of people believe about the Bible. But something that we probably don't think much about is what Jesus thought of the Bible. Isn't that an interesting question? What did Jesus think about the Bible? I think we make a lot of assumptions about what Jesus thought about the Bible. We're like, it's his book. Of course he likes it. But, but do we ever go to Scripture and see the words of Jesus speaking about the Scripture that speaks of him? Most of the time, we're looking to Scripture to see what Scripture says about Jesus. And today, it's a little bit fun because we get to see what Jesus says about Scripture, it's there, right in the pages of our Bible. Open up to Matthew 5, 17. In, in this passage, we actually have Jesus' own words expressing his view of Scripture. Now, in, in modern days, there's this question in theological circles, and the question is this, do you have a high or a low view of Scripture? That's how they talk about it. Do you have a high or a low view of Scripture? Now, how... Lots of people would express a high view of scripture is that uh, you would uphold that the Bible is fully true, that it's unchanging, and the eternal nature of scripture, that it doesn't change and it will be with us for as long as humans are here on earth. We're meant to fully trust it and fully obey it. That, that encapsulation, I'm sure I didn't get everything, but that's kind of what people would express as a high view of scripture. Now, there's this low view of Scripture, and, and I don't know if everyone would agree on this definition, but for the most part, people with a high view of Scripture <laughs> describe people with a, a low view of Scripture this way. That it's a spectrum. Everything from it's just another book, like the cat in the hat, all the way to that the Bible uh, has worthy and even some divine truth, but that it can be evaluated by other sources of truth, leading to parts or all of the Bible being rejected. So it, it may have some truth in there, may have some wisdom, but if you measure it against other, quote, sources of truth, perhaps you should let some of it go and, and embrace some of it. That would be a low, that would be the high end of the low view of Scripture, if that makes any sense. Now, we at Crosspoint hold a very high view of Scripture, that it is from God, it is truth, it doesn't change, and it is for us forever. But what I'm discovering is that even a, a, quote, high view of Scripture can be found wanting when we ask this question. In other words, what is described as a high view of Scripture doesn't go necessarily far enough if we accept it as is. Because when we ask this question, what was Jesus' view of Scripture? We see a bit more than what I've seen defining a high view of Scripture in those theological circles. We know what other Scripture says about Scripture, how it speaks about itself. 2 Timothy 3.16 describes it as being God-breathed, God-inspired, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, right? We probably, if you've been in the church long enough, you've probably heard that. If you haven't been in the church long enough, you will hear that. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 expresses that Scripture is God-instituted and that it was produced 
with dual authorship between God and man, that God inspired it, but that he, through the Holy Spirit, carried people along to write the actual words of Scripture. So it's this dual authorship between God and man, superintended by the Holy Spirit. And then in 2 Peter 3, we see that the apostles viewed the other New Testament writings, so the stuff that the other apostles were writing, John thinking about Paul and Paul thinking about Peter and Peter Peter thinking about Paul, that they viewed their writings and of the other apostles as scripture as well as the Old Testament, not just the Old Testament that Jesus embraced, but the New Testament that Jesus commissioned his apostles to write. They viewed it as scripture. Peter at one point in time says, you guys have read Paul. And he's like kind of a little side, like I know it's hard to understand, but stick with it because just like the other scriptures, it is so true and so valuable for our walk with God. Now these are the scriptures that I just mentioned that usually get cited to build our view of the Bible. And they're wonderful, but if we're going to insist on the importance of kingdom citizens reading and meditating on the scriptures, it is also of huge importance to us to know how our King Jesus specifically thought about the scriptures. Let's read his words in Matthew 5, 17. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets, if you just kind of put a little parenthesis around that, that was just a, a way to summarize, a way to abbreviate what we, the collection of books that we would now think of if I said Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi. When Jesus says the law and the prophets, think Genesis through Malachi, what we call the Old Testament. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Hold that in your mind. That is so important, that Jesus came to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, that's what Jesus says when he really wants to get something across that's really important. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that was the smallest letter. Not an iota, not a dot, like that's the smallest part of a letter. Not a letter and not even its smallest part, not the dot, will pass away from the law. Again, this is just a further abbreviation of the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament will not pass away from the law until all is accomplished. It is so obvious here, church, that Jesus taught that the scriptures are true, unchanging, and eternal. He trusted the scriptures as true. He said we shouldn't change them. We shouldn't adapt them. We shouldn't make them into our image. And they're gonna last much longer than we will until heaven and earth passes away. This is Jesus' view of scripture, but that's not all. See, Jesus was a friend to the scriptures. His intention was to uphold what was written, and not only to uphold it, but to fulfill it, to be the completion of what was written. That's what fulfill means, to be the completion of it. It's this story, this narrative, that at the end of Malachi has a dot, 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 and then Jesus says, I'm the rest of the story. In fact, I'm what the whole story's been leading to. Jesus warned against changing even the smallest stroke of a pen in the writings of scripture. This collection of books, of scrolls, is not to be changed, adapted, reinterpreted to prop up what we want to believe. If I disagree with the Bible, guess who gets to change? The Bible? No. Me. If I see something in the Bible that offends me, embarrasses me, cringes me, that I disagree with, I don't get to change God's word. I don't get to reject God's word. According to my King Jesus, I get to adapt to it. Jesus expects his followers, that's you and me, 
to take scripture at its original meaning, even if it offends us. And I would say sometimes, especially when it offends us. But that's not all that Jesus taught. Jesus also taught that the scriptures ought to be believed, taught, and obeyed. Believed, taught, and obeyed. Jesus didn't just say that scripture is true. He said, you need to believe it. We need to teach it. And we as followers in his kingdom are invited, commanded even, to obey the words of scripture. Look at Matthew, well, don't look at the act. I'll just read it to you. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. Jesus is answering this ridiculous riddle that the Sadducees, the Sadducees were this group of people that didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. Jesus obviously did, so much that he did it. But the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, so they give him this crazy riddle trying to catch him in his words that, hey, the resurrection can't be possible. And here's, <laughs> Jesus is awesome. Here's Jesus's response. 22, 29, Matthew. Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Mic drop. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. These are people who studied the Bible all the time. And Jesus says, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures. Here's what I want to notice about that. Jesus defines error as being in oppositions opposition to the teachings of scripture and what they reveal about God. Jesus is telling these Sadducees, the reason you're wrong is because you have not rightly understood scripture. If you did, you would be right. Jesus defines scripture as the plumb line of truth. But here's a problem that I wanna point out about the two things I've said. I've said Jesus taught that scriptures, the scriptures are true, unchanging, and eternal. And I've told you that Jesus taught that the scriptures ought to be believed, taught, and obeyed. And those statements are true. Or else we wouldn't put them up on the screen. But here's a problem. Up to this point, those two points I've said that Jesus affirmed, even the Pharisees of old would have agreed with Jesus. And I would say this too, even the most legalistic, loveless preachers of today, the guys with the bullhorns, the guys who it's all about them being right and everyone else being wrong, the guys that preach hellfire and brimstone and don't preach the grace, mercy, and love of God, even those people would agree with these two statements. Am I wrong? And yet there's something very broken about how they see, receive, and give scripture. If the Pharisees would agree with it, there must be more. <laughs> because Jesus is going to tell us here in a moment that our righteousness and our response to scripture must be greater than the Pharisees or we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's more to this. And I wanna tell you that believing in the truth, the eternality, and the authority of scripture is very good. Believe that with all your heart. But this alone, without going further, is not yet a high view of scripture. Even if you open the theological books and they say you have a high view of scripture, if you believe that the scriptures are true, authoritative, and eternal, that's wonderful but it must go further. Look at what Jesus says in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, which commandments? We have to ask this. We would assume he's talking about the commandments given in the old covenant law. I don't agree. I think Jesus is talking about the commandments he's about to give for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. If anyone relaxes one of the least of these commandments, the ones Jesus is about to give in verse 21 and forward, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, oh, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are hard words. How, how is my righteousness supposed to exceed these guys? They lived their whole life following the rules and teaching. They made rules. They're, there are 613, I believe, commandments in the Old Covenant. By the time it got to Jesus' point, there were like 10,000 rules they had made. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. 10,000-ish rules that they had made just to kind of prop up rules around the rules to make sure you didn't even get close to breaking the rule. And my righteousness has to exceed them? But Jesus is saying there's something missing from what these guys think, say, and do, and live. What were the Pharisees missing? They were missing the whole point. The Pharisees affirmed the truth, eternality, and authority of Scripture, and yet Jesus said that our response to Scripture must produce a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees believed Scripture. They taught scripture, and they seemed to go to great lengths to, quote, obey scripture, but they were still missing it by a long shot. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, the same group, hypocrites, he calls them, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, your garden herbs, the stuff you grow in your backyard. You take 10% of that and you give it to the temple. You tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin and yet have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. A gnat and a camel were both unclean unkosher foods according to the Old Testament law. Some commentators believe that the Pharisees and the scribes would actually put, when they're gonna eat some soup, would pour it through some like cheesecloth kind of thing to make sure they didn't like unintentionally eat a gnat and therefore make themselves unclean. Like imagine taking your wonderful baked potato soup and straining it through it. You miss all the good stuff. They did that so that they wouldn't unintentionally swallow an unclean animal. And yet Jesus is accusing them of ignoring the weightier matters of the law. Love, justice, mercy. And so they strain out the gnat, but they swallow the gigantic unclean camel. Scripture's aim is not to produce a facade of obedience. Its aim is to produce a response of faith. Faith in who? Jesus Christ, Messiah. Jesus said that this is the righteousness that the Pharisees were missing, one that leads to a response of faith in him. And Jesus claims that he himself is the culmination and fulfillment of all scripture. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill it. It all leads to me. And here's one of the main things the Pharisees were missing, that scripture is not and never has been a list of commands for life. It is not a rule book. It is not a manual for life. It is a story. It is a narrative about God and his people, all leading to Jesus. Does it include commands? Yes, it does. But it is not defined by the commands. It is defined by a God who created who responded to our failure and our sin with mercy and sent his own son to be the sacrifice on our behalf. And that if we would trust in him, we would be with the Father forever. That's a story, not a set of rules. 
Jesus read the Old Testament as a narrative in which all threads culminate in him like a beautiful tapestry where there's all these threads and they all come together to paint a picture of who? Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in John 5, 37 through 40. This is, and he's speaking to the religious elite of that day, the ones who got to call the shots and say what scripture meant. I love this passage. I love these words of Jesus. John 5, 37, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. He's talking to people who spend most of their waking hours studying and debating and meditating on the scriptures and trying to follow the commands they find in them. And he says to them, these people who do a whole lot more work in the Bible and reading of the Bible than we ever do, he says, you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent, Jesus. This is where it gets huge. You search the scriptures you Pharisees and scribes, search the scriptures because you think that in them, the scriptures, you will have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. All the scriptures of the Old Testament that these men labored over all day long, Jesus is claiming they speak of Jesus. What a claim that is yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Life is not found in scripture. Life is found in Jesus. And scripture is what heralds who he is and how we are saved. The Pharisees and scribes knew, upheld, taught, and enforced the scriptures, and yet Jesus said that they were still completely lost. Friends, I beg you to consider this. If your study, your meditation of scripture does not lead you to know, love, obey, and have joy in Jesus, you have not interacted with scripture as intended. It is not a list of rules to be followed. It is a God who wants to be believed, loved, trusted and treasured to have your deepest joy in. Jesus trusted, studied, quoted, upheld, and obeyed the scripture because it is the revelation of his Father, God the Father himself, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we trust, study, quote, uphold, and obey the scriptures because we want to know and love our King. Can I get an amen? In other words, we study the scriptures to be close to Jesus. Not just to fill our heads with knowledge. Oh, please don't fill your head with the knowledge of scripture and miss the one that it's talking about, Jesus. I had a seminary professor, still keep in contact with him to this day, but I was in seminary a long time ago. And I... This man spent probably most or many, but maybe most of his waking hours every day studying and teaching the scriptures to us arrogant seminary students who were so into the knowledge we were learning. But the thing among many that stuck with me about this seminary professor was that when he taught us scriptures, you could tell in his eyes and in his heart that he so loved Jesus. That he found joy in Jesus. I remember one time he came in, it was a Saturday, I think it was a Saturday, we were having class, he came in and he seemed, you know, uh, not his usual self and his, he shared with us his mother had died. And he got to be in the room when she took her final breath. Do you want to know the word he used to describe that experience? He called it exquisite. Exquisite. What does that word even mean? <laughs> but to him, 
He saw his mother who loved and trusted Jesus and knew that she had passed from the presence of him directly to the presence of Jesus and to that seminary professor of mine. That was such a joyful experience because someone he was just looking at is now in the presence of the king he loved more than anything else. This guy's speech wasn't just about knowledge. He has so much, but it was dripping with love for King Jesus. That is different than just knowing the scriptures. That is loving the king they speak of. If my study of scripture produces in me a pride in the knowledge that I have or a pride in being right, I have completely missed the point. I'm not saying there's not a right and a wrong. Scripture teaches things. And we have a goal to know what the scripture teaches so that we will know what truth is and what truth isn't. But church, let me just give you a warning, if I may. Beware, I pray I'm not one. Beware preachers and teachers who use scripture and it's all about them being right and everyone else being wrong. And it's all about the knowledge we have and that we stick to, to be scripturally loyal. But you don't see a love and joy in Jesus. Again, I'm not saying there isn't right or wrong. I'm not saying there isn't a right or wrong. If you tell me, don't tell me that. There is. But the point of scripture is to see and enjoy Jesus forever. Not for me to be right and everyone else to be wrong. Beware of people who claim to speak for God, but it's about them being right and full of the right knowledge. Beware. They will not lead you where Jesus is leading us. Jesus claims that the scriptures should be a catalyst which spark a righteousness that is greater than the religious elite of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. That our interaction with scripture should spark a righteousness that's greater than theirs. How could I ever be more righteous than a person who weighs their garden herbs to tithe off of them? Who strains their soup to make sure they don't even inadvertently break the law? How can my righteousness be greater than theirs? I I have a hard time controlling my hands when someone cuts me off in traffic. And my mouth, and my heart. How can my righteousness exceed theirs? I want to tell you how. By receiving a righteousness that's given to me, not produced by me. The Pharisees were seeking to manufacture their own man-made righteousness rather than coming to God empty-handed. Remember when Jesus said in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are what? The poor in spirit. Those who come to God saying, I have nothing to offer you. None of my works, nothing I've done is of any worth to you without Jesus. Blessed are they who come open, empty-handed to God and say, I must receive from you. They're the blessed ones. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees were seeking to manufacture their man-made righteousness rather than coming to God empty-handed and receiving a righteousness through faith in Jesus. Man-made righteousness is only skin deep. It mimics righteousness by putting an outward mask of obedience, and we all do this. Oh, we all do this. I did it this week. I may have even done it right here on this, right now. I don't know. I don't know. 
but it's only skin deep. But true righteousness, Jesus says, is that which penetrates to the core. All of me. Jesus taught that the scriptures lead us to inner transformation, not just behavioral modification. Inner transformation to the core. It is my view, like I said earlier, that when Jesus said, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same, he will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's not referring back to the commandments given of the old covenant, but that he's referring forward to what he's about to command in verses 21 through 48, or even the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. If not, if he's referring back to the old covenant commands, he would just be calling the people to keep obeying the laws of the old covenant. And the Pharisees were pros at this, you guys. They were pros. They made rules to follow so they could follow rules. They were pros at obeying those commandments outwardly. But Jesus said that our righteousness must exceed that of these rule keepers. No, Jesus is saying, these commands I'm about to give you, these commands as your king in this kingdom that I am initiating and explaining to you in the Sermon on the Mount, those who relax them will be least. Those who obey and teach them will be great. And in verse 21, he begins to make a series of statements, repeated statements that have this theme to them. He starts them off by saying, you have heard that it was said, ABC, but I say to you, X, Y, Z. He does this several times in a row. He takes an Old Testament command, a command from the scripture that says, you've heard it said, you've heard it taught by these scribes and Pharisees. You've heard it taught ABC, but I'm saying to you X, Y, Z. Let's read a couple of them and look at them. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't even keep anger in your heart. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, and that goes the opposite way as well, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't even think about it in your heart and your mind. Don't even conceive it. Don't even start walking in your mind in that direction. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, the love your neighbor part is there in the Old Testament. The hate your enemy part is not. But apparently this is what they've been hearing from the religious elite of the day. Love your enemy. Sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Do you see the pattern that Jesus is setting up here? He doesn't go through every single command of Scripture, but he selects just a few of them and sets up a pattern for how we should read them, how we should hear them, how we should let God speak to us through them. And let me ask you a question. Is the bar Jesus is setting here lower or higher than what had been being taught? Higher much higher, not just don't do it, but don't conceive it in your heart. You see, the Pharisees and scribes would have said, you know, I hate that guy, but I never murdered him, so I'm okay. The Pharisees and scribes, and probably a lot of people on that day would have said, you know what, I, I want all these people's stuff. I am so jealous of them, but I've never stolen, so I'm okay. And Jesus says, no. It's not just the command that's written. It's the intent of the heart. Jesus moves it up and further in. Up and further in. 
You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm saying to you, don't even lust. You have heard it said, do not steal, but I say, don't even covet. You have heard it said, tithe, but I say to you, where should I move my hands? Give all that you can because you love me, sacrificially, upward and further inward. This is the way of Jesus. Jesus is saying it's not enough for you just to follow some rules outwardly. The intent of scripture is to produce a faith in you that changes you inwardly at the level of intent, will, and desire. This can't just be about you trying to transform what you do. Jesus is inviting us into a relationship with him in which he transforms who we are. And the behavior follows our changed heart. This is so beautiful. Jesus is saying it's not about following the rules. It's about letting me change who you are down to the core of your desires so that you want to obey me because you want me. Guys, is it hard to do things you want to do? Charlotte, God bless her, brought home from Costco last night these hostess cupcake things. It was not hard for me to eat three of them in a row. And I'm trying to clean eat, you guys. That was really easy to do. Why? Because I wanted to. How beautiful that Jesus doesn't say to us, follow all the rules. He says, let me change your heart and that'll change everything. And that's different than any other philosophy and teaching on the entire planet. That he wants your heart first and the behavior follows. You can live your whole life trying to please God by your works and it will never work because it's man-made. Or you can live your whole life trusting and being close to Jesus and day by day, everything will change. You won't be perfect, but your heart will change and your will will change and your desires will change because the transformation is done by God himself. What a difference. I wanna say this to you. I do not have a right view of scripture until scripture has the right to transform me. I do not have a right view of scripture until scripture has the right to transform me. And I had already given those notes to put up on the screen for people and then I thought yesterday, you know, there's a better way to say that. So I'm gonna amend it right now. It is the Holy Spirit who changes me, who transforms me and he uses scripture to do so. I do not have a right view of scripture until scripture empowered by the Holy Spirit has a right to transform me. Later in the book of Matthew, Jesus diagnoses this dysfunctional nature of the Pharisees' man-made righteousness. Matthew 15, eight, he's quoting from Isaiah. He's quoting from an Old Testament scripture. He says this, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When you strip scripture of Jesus and the relationship with God, it becomes merely doctrine of men rather than the word of God. The problem with the Pharisees' approach to scripture is that it left their hearts far from an intimacy with God. They were obedient, but they were not faithful. There's a difference between obedient and faithful. It's like a husband or a wife who does not actually cheat on their spouse and yet spends all their time wanting to. This may be obedience in action, but it is not faithfulness of heart.
We are not called to mere obedience. Jesus invites us into the joy of faithfulness and our will and our desire in him. A high view of scripture, according to Jesus, is not stopping at declaring that the Bible is true, unalterable, and eternal. That is true. But to Jesus, a high view of scripture is one that believes that scripture is so true, so unalterable, and eternally about Jesus that it leads to intimacy and faithfulness to him in the core of our being. In other words, we obey the scriptures to be faithful to Jesus. And our hearts are transformed. And we obey Jesus because our hearts are faithful to him. Our will and our desires are faithful to him. Faithfulness is that land beyond obedience. Don't stop at obedience. Keep going on to faithfulness. Not only am I doing what God commands, but it's coming from a place of love, desire, and joy. Faithfulness may be a higher bar than obedience, but I would disagree that it's a a more difficult bar than obedience. Because it proceeds from deep joy. Faithfulness comes from, I want Jesus, I love Jesus, I have joy in Jesus, and so following his commands are a delight to me. And you may say, that is not anything I've ever experienced, Travis. You are just talking way too spiritual right now. I'm not. When I used to read my Bible, I did it because I knew that Having biblical knowledge was important. I knew that I was supposed to. And so I read it as a good, loyal Christian boy. But recently, as I've read scripture, it's like feasting on a meal. Because there I see a picture, a story, It's all about Jesus. And he's who I want. And so when I go to scripture, it isn't drudgery. It's like the the most amazing meal you've ever been served. I'm not saying it's like that every day. This morning it was, yesterday not so much. But it's joy. If I could get, please hear this, and would you absorb what I'm about to say into every cell of your body? Friends, closeness and faithfulness to Jesus is not a job, it is joy. It is joy, like nothing else in the world can offer you. It is joy. Discovering God through his word is not drudgery. It's not have to. Loyal as you may be, if that's all you're experiencing is the drudgery, the have to of reading scripture and obeying it, there's something beyond that God is calling you into. That is not God's ultimate joy for you. It's just drudgery and obedience. Our Father is inviting you into a relationship with him that is close and faithful because Jesus has become such a treasure to you that you want to. And being in his presence is joy. Being in his presence is what you want more than anything else. And you say, I'm not there right now, Travis. I know oftentimes I'm not either. And I would say for most of my life, I have not been. But when God invites you into that and you finally let your guard down and let him, you will experience a joy in him that you haven't had before because you're finally with him. I'm not gonna give you a list of things to do this week. That would be a little ironic. (laughs) But here's what I wanna invite you into. As you read scripture this week, if you do, 
And if you don't, I would encourage you to. As you read scripture this week, don't go into it doing it because you have to or you, you wanna check the box or you wanna keep the streak going on your Bible app. Go to it saying, God, I want to enjoy you. I want to see Jesus and I wanna have a feast in your presence on who you are, what you've done, and what you're calling me into. So many of us, uh, I think, have been reading the Beatitudes every day, that challenge Matt gave. Don't, don't go to that, because you have to. Do you see the echoes of the Beatitudes and what we've been saying here this morning? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, want righteousness. They will be what? Satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? See God. Do you want to see God? Do you want to be satisfied? Then see Jesus. Seek Jesus. Find your joy in Jesus through God's word and prayer and fasting and giving. It's about him. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, you are a greater treasure than any of my words or any of our words could express. You truly are. Give us joy in you. Keep us coming to you. Keep us following you. Keep us treasuring you, feasting, feasting on the beautiful story of a God who is holy, but who loves people who aren't. Oh, and Let it well up a joy in our hearts that keep us coming back for more and more and more. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.